Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my honor to be in dialogue with Lord Leslie Turnberg. He was a professor of medicine and president of the Royal College of Physicians in England. We are here today to discuss his newly published book, Mandate, the Palestine Crucible, 1919-1939, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2021. Leslie, I can hardly thank you enough for your kindness and for your availability. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed this book and catalyzed the writer you would become as an adult? Born in Salford, near Manchester, in England, uh, 1934, long time ago, uh, in a family where my father was born in Romania, my mother was uh, Austrian and, and uh, Polish origin, and I was the first member of my family, my other family, to go into university at and we were uh, fairly poor, but not destitute family. And I grew up in Manchester, went to university in Manchester, and qualified as a doctor in 1992, uh, 1957. And I worked and trained in Manchester, London, and in America. And I started on a research career while I was in America. 1967. And during that time, I carried out quite a lot of research. When I came back, I was up with a caring medicine, a professor of medicine in Manchester for American to do my research, my teaching, and my clinical work. And so, gastroenterologist, I was then trained in gastroenterology. And I Carried on in university for several years until I became dean at the medical school in the 1980s. I did for years, and then at the end of that, I was elected to become president of the Royal College of Physicians in London in 1992. I continued to do five years living in London then uh, in the Royal College of Physicians in Regent Park. So that was my medical background. I married. Uh, my Israeli wife, 1968, while in America, Dallas, Texas. And we then got married again when we went back from Manchester. And uh, we had two children, uh, Daniel and Ellen. Daniel, our son, was also born a doctor, but was sadly killed in an airplane class, slicing our lives in. Uh, 2007, and that made an enormous difference to our 
lives lose a lot as your son Paul. Our daughter went to live in Israel, which had two kids, uh, four kids, sorry. Uh, of whom two are married and one about to be married. So that's my background. My interest in Israel and um, leading up to the publication of my first book on Israel, which was the uh, Young Balkan Declaration. Published in 2017. Uh, the reason I became interested in Israel uh, was because of family connections, obviously, but also because when I came into the House of Lords, which I was brought, I was brought into the House of Lords in the year 2000 by Tony Blair, uh, and the reason he brought me in was because I'd written a report for the government on the health service in London and suggested ways in which health services may be improved. And he liked the report and asked if I would come into the House of Lords to talk about health matters. When I got into the House of Lords, I realized there was a fair deal of antipathy towards Israel. And so it felt to me to be want to uh, try to defend Israel, even though some of the elections in Israel, it's not terribly defensible. But nevertheless, I was in the position of having saying a good word about Israel, which I've done ever since. Um, but I realized that coming up to the centenary of the Balfour Declaration in 2017, I would uh, find quite a lot of uh, antipathetic comments about whether Balfour did a good thing or a bad thing in creating what he's helping create. State of Israel. So I felt I ought to write a bit of a history of Israel from the Balfour Declaration, which is what I did and published the book, which was basically the history of Israel from its inception right to 2017. And that came out in that war. That really was me about the history of Israel. So I did a lot of research came out in 2017, and subsequently I realized this was saying yeah, early superficial history. Well, I needed to get into more debt, and that prompted me to study the mandate period between the wars, between 1917 and 1939, 1919 and 1949. Those were very critical years for the state of Israel and its formation. And so that's the reason behind me writing this book about which we develop some interest. What message do you hope to convey to readers of this book? Well, I want to try to indicate that what a miracle it was that the state of Israel emerged at all what that happened during those 20 years. 1919 and 1949. The Balfour Declaration in 1917 was not a treaty, it was not a promise, it was not an act of parliament. It was simply the government looking with favor on the idea of a new home in Palestine. That's all it was, looking with favor. And so to go from that to the mandate for Palestine 
in turn allow Goonies entrance and Limited built mark uh, was an enormous step. And to get that message across, that uh, there was a people that's given across Europe, mainly in various states of poverty and persecution, being uh, allowed and encouraged to enter Palestine at a time when the Arabs were. Palestinian Arabs in particular, perhaps only the Palestinian Arabs at that time, were very much against them coming. And the Jews were outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Palestinian Arabs at the time. And the government of the day in during the 1920s were vacillating, were uncertain, unclear about whether really this was a good thing. They would be pressed by the Arabs to revoke the Balfour Declaration. Uh, also, of antagonism to the Greens as the on men, and at various times there were riots, various times there were limitations put on the numbers of immigrants coming into, into Palestine at the time. And the miracle is that despite all those things, the Jews were able to establish the basis of what we call the state. Israel in 1948. Those 20 year olds were absolutely critical. It turns out that they were different able to do it on their own. They had been left for their own resources without the British taking on the mandate for Palestine. It would have been extremely difficult for them to survive against the onslaught of huge numbers or Arabs. Who didn't want them there at all, didn't want to get them their land, didn't want them to immigrate. Oh, and they were very antipathetic to Jews at the time. And they saw a takeover of their land by this foreign body. So the message I want to get across is how vitally important the mandate period was during the period of the Human War for allowing the Jews begin to establish themselves. But by the end of that period, 1949, there were about 300,000 Jews against four Arabs. Well, that's the message. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? Well, there are several arguments. Um, there's been a lot of debates about why Balfour on the British government brought up the idea of allowing the Jews uh, to have some encouragement to set up their own Palestine. This was 1917, the war was on, um, and the uh, Lord George was prime minister, and Arthur Balfour was the, uh, had been, had been prime minister, but was in the war cabinet. He, Become interested because I'm White's one had met him and had seemed to convince him that the Jews had a case. Herzl had already suggested which land in Palestine, and White's one was very leading Zionist in England at the time, it was in Manchester, where I was. And he was raging Balfour, this was a good point. Balfour was the chief cabinet. The government 
from it. And they accepted it for several reasons. One, Stein Weitzman was an ally who developed a method of producing acetone that was necessary for production of explosives during the Forceful War. And it developed a method for producing large amounts of acetone. So they wanted to reward Weitzman for doing that. But perhaps more importantly, they wanted to convince the American Jews to persuade the American president to come into the war on the side of the Allies. So that was a very useful method. But was more than that. He actually was very clear that the Jews had been badly treated by Christianity in Europe for many wars. And he said as much. He said that we really do, we are guilty of the terrible to abuse for too long. This is necessary. So he was convinced for ethical, moral And the Barker Declaration came out. There were two other meetings going on at the same time that uh, people talk about. One was the Sykes-Picot agreement, which had been reached in 1916, between the French and the Brits, and this was an agreement in secret. Well, the Declaration, incidentally, was uh, public, was in a letter to Rothschild. It was public widely. It was supported by the French, the Italians, even the Pope supported it, and eventually the Americans supported it too. So it had wide outright support. Black Pico was secret. Black Pico was between the French and the Brits uh, in 1916 to divide up the Middle East if and when the Allies won the First World War. They believed they would, and they would be able to take over the Ottoman Empire in the Balloons and divide it up between the French and the Brits. That was wonderful. The other agreement was even more secret. This was a secret agreement between Henry McMahon, and it's been in the High Commissioner, and King Hussein of Egypt, was Arabia. Uh, this agreement was to try to get the Arabs in Arabia to go against the uh, Ottomans, against the Turks, on whose empire this Middle East was run to go up to revolt against them uh, on behalf of the allies, the Brits. Hussein um, wasn't a very nice man. He murdered all the Poland. Uh, and he uh, was already in trouble by the Turks. The Turks wanted to oust him. So he was keen to work with the allies. Uh, and there was a correspondence between Mahan and Hussein promising that if the war was won by the Allies and the Ottomans were ousted from the Middle East, he would then have the whole of the Middle East from right in the north, including Syria, right down to towards Egypt, not including Arabia, Mesopotamia. Palestine, Bokhung, Iraq, and Jordan, all that would be his. That's what Hussein thought he'd been promised 
it's not exactly what McMahon thought he promised for a lot of vaccination, a lot of underhand activity going on. And that correspondence was never published because it had people saying would be killed by the Turks. But it was never published. And there were a lot of misunderstandings about what people did not Those were the three events that were going on. Uh, before the war and alcohol, McMahon was sent to Spangles and site people. Uh, of those, only about the declaration of the public that belonged to it, the only one that survived, because when the war was won, as it was in the, 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 by 1917, General Allenby was all over, all over Palestine and Taking Jerusalem in 1917. By then, it was clear that the, uh, the same McMahon correspondence was not going to hold any water uh, because the French and the Brits had already decided to divide up Syria in the north of the French and Mesopotamia in the south of the So that was the position at the end of the First World War. I can stop there for a moment to ask the next question. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I'd like them to get from the point when the end of the First World War, 1919, was the peace conference in Versailles. And at that moment, the problems of the Jews were degraded or were not involved. Because at that time they had to powers that be France, Italy, France, and America now had to sort out the after effects of the war. Economies of all those countries destroyed, or were going to go into a recession in the 1920s and 30s. General strikes. Uh, they had to make try and make Germany repay all the damage. They had done starting the war, and these uncles was trying to sort everything out. Amongst all the various things they were trying to do um, was the business of what should happen to the Ottoman Empire, what would happen to the Middle East. And therein lay the problem because Sykes and people, Lloyd George and Clemens, so had already decided they wanted to divide up countries and become colonies of. And find the colonies were going out of fashion. Britain's empire was deteriorating, where the Indian continent was, India was struggling to get out from under the British rule, and the days of empire were gone. And uh, the American president uh, came in and said in his 14 Pope on plan that uh, this is Woodrow Wilson. He said that uh, countries, new countries, old countries, have to be self-sufficient. They can no longer be run by as colonies. They have to be self-determined. And uh, the idea of mandates came up. Mandates were not colonies. They were be run by countries who know, knew how to run countries until those countries were capable of looking after themselves. So there were planetary arrangements set up until the individual countries could manage their own affairs. 
in modern society as it was. And that's what happened with, for example, with uh, Syria, it happened with Iraq, it happened with it happened with Lansquartan, it didn't happen with Palestine, because Palestine mandate had been, had been uh, promised. That promise had been confirmed in San Remo in 1922. Uh, and then confirmed by the League of Nations in 1923. The League of Nations looked at the promise of a mandate for Palestine and approved it with 51 out of 51 members approving. It was absolutely by the League of Nations that the mandate of Palestine should include a homeland for the Jews and in return of the Jews. So those were the background. The Van Remo Conference, despite the French not wanting, the French were dead against it, but the Brits won the day. Um, and the League of Nations Conference. So it then went into international law. And although Britain struggled during the next 20, 30 years, particularly in the last 30 years, until 1949, struggled with problem of how to separate the warring parties between the Arabs and the Jews, lots of riots, lots of killing going on, how to, to separate these warring parties at a time when they had their own problems, Britain uh, had its own problems, and, uh, but it was stuck with it. It was stuck with it because they take non-responsibilities that they couldn't get. They'd agreed with the League of Nations, and they couldn't use it without considerable loss of face. So they stuck with it, and they were able to allow the development within Palestine during the whole of that period of the Jews, despite any reluctance or lots of debates in Parliament in Britain trying to revoke the and certainly by 1922, all the League of Nations in Portugal, there was a uh, very strong debate saying we really shouldn't be approving this uh, development of Palestine. We shouldn't be stopping this now. But in fact, it went through and all that the mandate, it went through the League of Nations. And the mandate consisted right until Britain got rid of it in 1948, when they handed it over, 1947, they handed it over to the United States. So those 20 years between the wars were very critical because Britain, in under the High Commissioner, was Speaker Edward Samuel, and later other High Commissioners, had to toe the line. They had to try to keep the Arabs or the Jews in line one way or another, very reluctantly, as you said. Sometimes they were on the verge of jettisoning the old idea and handing it over to America. America wouldn't have done anything to do with it. They were stuck with it. On page 204, you write as follows. The major advantage that the Jews had over the Arabs was the friends they continued to have in high places, particularly in Britain. They included Lord Balfour, Lord Snell, Josiah Wedgwood, Ormsby Gore, and most significantly David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill. 
whom they had been nurturing for years, plus several Jewish members of the government, including Herbert Samuel and Rufus Isaacs, later Lord Reading. Yet despite the fact that most of them were out of office for much of the 1930s, it is remarkable that they were able to continue to espouse support for the Zionists. The Arabs were very late trying to gain allies in the British Parliament, nor did they have the influential diaspora that the Jews had available. In America after the war, there was a growing pro-Zionist lobby among wealthy Jews who were able to fund much of the development of the Jews in Palestine. Many were in high positions in business, banking, and the law, and tried hard, not always successfully, to influence senior politicians. The power of the quote-unquote Jewish lobby there was always somewhat exaggerated. Then there was the enthusiastic idealism of young, highly intelligent Jews imbued with European know-how who were able, who were eager to make a new life. Drive, initiative, and knowledge gave them the tools to make a difference in an inhospitable and threatening environment. The quote-unquote new Jew was a strapping, self-reliant, no-nonsense go-getter who was no one's victim. Little wonder that the Warfelachin, living in a previous century without means or education, could not compete and became increasingly resentful as they watched the takeover of their country. Their masters in the small number of notable families had been well-off and well-educated but did nothing to share that well-being with the Felachin in the fields who had been suppressed for centuries under the Ottoman rule. Under the mandate and with friends in high places in Britain and America, the odds had moved in favor of the Jews and against the Arab position. Despite their numerical superiority, the Palestinian Arabs were losing the battle against the influx of eager immigrants armed with modern European technology, financially supported from abroad, and protected by the British. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? What does it reveal about the period that you examine in this book? In what ways does it represent in a microcosm themes that are developed throughout your book? Yeah, I think that, well, I, obviously I agree with everything that said, uh, and that you relate to, well, well that it was true that the Jews had considerable advantages despite their numerical inferiority. And they did have friends in high places. It didn't help them in the end. Uh, it didn't help them right up the end. 1936, there was general strikes and riots amongst the Arabs. And at that time, there were such unrest. And in Britain, there was old clear from the Second World War. Is about to start on The last thing they needed was revolts and riots and killing They sent in the army. They did But they were clear that this situation couldn't continue. And they decided to have well, a number of reports, the field report, commission. Woodhead Commission looked at how they could sort out this difficulty between the Jews and the Arabs. And Peel came up with the, for the first time an official partition plan to divide 
Jewish sector from the Arab sector. The Jews accepted it, the Arabs didn't. Uh, it was clear that it was a much a terrible good proposal because of the map that they produced. It involved three sections, um, a Jewish section which was very small and very narrow, an Arab section equally distorted, and a middle section which was international around Jerusalem and the long sections. So it was a very peculiar division. So the government decided to send in Woodhead to produce another four competition. He produced three plans for two of which members of his own rule disagreed with, and again, potential was off the table. By this time, 1939, the government was fearful that we were going to have a second world war. They wanted to be shot at the whole thing. So they held a conference in London, and they, they returned, despite the fact that until then, the Arabs had done everything not to collaborate or cooperate with the means all they were fighting both the Jews and the Brits, and the Brits were getting fed up with them, but they realized they were all double position. They knew that coming up was the Second World War. They would lead a Indian Muslim population to join them in the fight against the Axis powers against them, and India laid, laid heavily on their mind. So, they held a conference in, in London, which they invited Jews with representatives and the Arab representatives. Uh, neither the Jews nor the Arabs met together. They had two separate meetings with McDonald as the foreign secretary, as the colonial secretary there, leading the discussions. In the end, they said, look, you've got to agree to this partition. If you don't agree to it, we are going to uh, hand over the mandate to you, the population of Palestine, and the majority rule will obtain in five to ten years' time when they will decide, the majority rule will decide on immigration and land purchase. The Jews immediately knew this was fatal to them because they were grossly outnumbered still, two to one, by the Arabs. And if the Arabs then became government, they would not be able to continue in, at the end of five to ten years. And that's how the, the Arabs, with all their rights, with all their uh, strikes, had won the day. And despite the fact that the Brits were fed up with them, and despite the fact that the Jews had tried, tried to come up with some old things, uh, and were willing to work with partition plans and so on, the Arabs were, re the, were rewarded for their aggressive tactics. And that really destroyed the Jews for a while. And Glorian at the time, uh, the beginning of the Second World War, uh, spoke about, uh, we will fight the war as if there is no white paper. The white paper described as Walton. And we'll fight the white paper as if there's no law. law. It was a terrible time, 1939, because that was when the door to immigration was shut, fairly tight, from Europe, where the Jews were being persecuted. 
went up to concentration camps and eventually to extermination camps later on. And that, that was the end of the Holocaust. So during the war, uh, Jewish immigration into Palestine was very limited by the white paper. wasn't absolutely excluded, but the numbers were limited. And uh, so the, the end of the ni- 1930s, 1939, saw a reversal of fortune towards the Arabs, largely as a result of the fact that the Brits couldn't afford to keep running and a divided country in that way. They wanted to keep the Arabs and the Muslims from in the particular one board. Uh, and uh, so they gave in to Arab bands to be able to run their own affairs. I have to say that that villainous uh, Grand Muftin, Al-Busseini, wasn't satisfied and he demanded more element. They're no longer in office. So, the end of the 1930s saw a, a reversal of fortune. Until then, uh, of course, there were many episodes you knew about uh, riots and killing and so on. And all the people Speaking of Hajj Amin al Husseini, can you elaborate on the insights your book provides regarding his role in the events that played out during the interwar years. Can you comment on his role in the 1929 riots? Can you comment on his involvement in murders of Arab opponents and of British officials? Can you comment on the circumstances regarding his release from prison? Can you comment on his presidency of the World Islamic Congress? What can Listeners and readers learn from you about Haj Amin al Husseini. He was um, a young man in his twenties. Was quite charismatic. He wanted to be religious. Happy praying open and following man at all. But he spoke very well. And and in nineteen twenty, he was very active raising the voice of Palestinian Arabs against the imported And he incited the riots, which occurred in 1920 uh, and again in 1941. He was, uh, um, during that time, 1920, the first riot, he was, of course, and was going to be imprisoned by Alan, the military commander of the town, but he escaped and went off to the very um, 1921, we came back, and Herbert Samuel Bethel, by then, they had the Muslim, and we gave them an amnesty to get the other. And he then decided, because Herbert Samuel was Jewish, he was very suspicious, well, suspected by the Arabs of being Jewish and that all Zionists and awful. Herbert Samuel leant over backwards to try and demonstrate that he was their man and not biased. And he appointed Husseini as the Mahdi of Jerusalem, despite the fact that there were others more suited to that. He became the Grand Mahdi, or over other Mahdi's. And he then 
went on to incite all sorts of other uprisings, one in 1921 uh, and then a one in 1929. Um, he was clearly a Palestinian nationalist and was almost certainly a severe anti-Semite. His anti-Semitism certainly came out much later, but he was dead against the news taking over. He, um, during the 1930s, was gradually realized as being by the Brits as being yeah, anti-Semitic to the London. And so they expelled him, he ran away. He finished up in Germany in the 1940s and became a supporter of Hitler. And he used to uh, raise a lot of propaganda against the Jews uh, and that things like wherever the Jews kill them. And his propaganda was really um, And he was cleared of that strong Palestinian nationalist and anti Seymour. He was out of the uh, way for a long time. In its double German war, I'll say, then later in France, incidentally, there were plots to have him killed or by various bonds, but uh, he survived. It's interesting that although he was, I suppose, in a way, the father of Palestinian nationalism, the Palestinian Authority, the Arab never referred to him. He was really out of political. He was a very nasty man. He pulled uh, up his opponents. To metal, there is a lot of riots, even though we are not guilty by some of the Muslims that Britain said that he was undoubtedly responsible for much of what taken against the Jews. So, very nasty man. In what way does your book shed new light on the McMahon Hussein understandings? On the McMahon Hussein understandings, yeah. Well, they were. I described that a series of letters between uh, Henry McMahon, the High Commission in Egypt, and on behalf of the British government, promising McMahon, uh, promising and saying that he would lead the owner for the Middies if Britain won the war and relieve the Middies of the Ottoman. And he would then be allowed to run the whole Middies. This was a secret agreement, and it wasn't really an agreement because it was hedged around with all sorts of books and pieces. And included in the advisors was that this agreement to give him the leadership and the early that needs was to exclude Palestine, Palestinian. The question really arose as to where was Palestine, as it had been up till 19. Part of the Syrian province of the Ottoman Empire. It didn't have a separate boundary. And there was a lot of debate during the 1920s and 30s about where the boundaries of Palestine actually existed. Um, Churchill thought it was the line between that uh, Sheva and Ramadan uh, on the north. Uh, but it, it, it it wasn't that line because no one quite knew where the where these places were at that time. But nevertheless, uh, Palestine was explored. And as far as Hussein was concerned, King Hussein was concerned, and his son 
We have three sons, Ali, brother, and Faisal. And uh, none of them felt much feeling of Palestinian elves. They thought these were very backward people, which they were mainly, apart from the notable families, who were very much involved in Turks. And the general Arab population just wanted to get on with their lives. They regarded themselves mostly as Muslims. They didn't embark themselves to Palestinians. They were illiterate. They were kept out of education. And they were poor. And so they regarded them as unnecessary. They didn't regard them as being important to keep on in their own empire that they thought of. But the correspondence perhaps seemed to promise that this would happen. Of course, it never could have happened because the Syrians, for example, didn't want Hussein to be uh, on top of them. They didn't like him. Uh, and certainly not people in the rest of Mesopotamia. So, anyway, he was kicked out even of his own country, Hejaz, by King Saud, when he came to Saudi Arabia in the 1920s. So, we didn't have access to his own country. But that correspondence has stuck in the throats of the Arabs ever since. Because they believed that Britain reneged on that promise of saying, speaking from the whole of the Middle East, they couldn't have done it because the French had already promised to help Syria, and Britain had already thought that they would help Mesopotamia. Incidentally, in 1921, Churchill went across that arrow and set up two new countries, Transjordan and Iraq. And it very, very formed in 1941, and the Mesopotamia was divided up in those days. Anyway, that's the, the Mahan saga, Mahan Hussein saga. It was, a, it, was a, it was a sad reflection of British double, double thinking. They gave one and one to the other. And it was a obfuscation on a large scale. They'd already promised the French to help the site speak arrangements. Does that help you? Thank you. That was a very generous response. I appreciate it. What was the Peel Commission report? Can you describe its ramifications and its recommendations? Well, the Peel, Peel Commission report, 1938, came at the end of a period of riots and violence and strikes, and the Arabs were all over the place. And the Jews were defending themselves very effectively, and the Brits walked in. So it was a period of great unrest. Britain was fearful that 1938 was or so they sent Peel to look at what could be done. We came up with the idea of partition, dividing Palestine into two countries, a Jewish and an Arab Muslim part. And he came up with a plan which I described earlier, a very plan which involved Jews in the north, Arabs in the south, and a peace in between, which was under international rule, uh, including Jerusalem and a long sliver of land to the coast. And it divided the north from the south, so that anyone traveling across a good part in the south as well had to go between that dance, so to speak, get the water. It was a very complicated thing, and it would have involved moving a lot of from one, the Jewish part, a lot of things from the Arab part, it was really not a very good partition plan. Uh, and it, it brought back to 
the British government, they looked at it and thought, well, this is okay, but it's going to cost us far too much money. So they sent Woodhead out to do another plant to see if he could do better. And the Woodhead Commission came in 1938, and uh, came up with three plans in which they divided the country in different ways. Uh, the panel that came were three of them. Two of the members said they didn't like two of the plants. So the plants were rejected, and the one that was finally accepted was regarded as far too expensive, so it died the death. Uh, but it, th these were the first efforts of partition, uh, and um, the Jews accepted them. The Arabs said no. Uh, the Jews accepted them, even though it gave the Jews a minute control. Some said it was the size of Norfolk when it was debated on the House of Commons and the House of Law. It was a very small area. Uh, so it wasn't entirely satisfactory, but it did give them the first time a Jewish state, and that was without a Jewish state. So it hadn't had a Jewish state before that. It had a Jewish mandate and a mandate on a transfer, never a state. So saying a state was a big move and was one of the reasons why Hussaini objected to it. Although it was very, you know, it was interesting. It was on the basis of partition that the United Nations came up with a partition plan in 947, which again, the incipient state of Israel in 1948 accepted, but the Arab states didn't. And all that resulted in 1948, two slimes, armistice lines in Jordan took over the whole of the bank, and Israel held the West. So that was um, partition. You recall partition. What new insights does your book reveal regarding Nahum Sokolov? Well, Sokolov is an unsung era of mine, at least, and of many others. So the Sokolov screen team, and I've the made the other Sokolovs. He's not very widely known. He was a colleague, friend of Fine White's, and what in the years leading up to the Balfour Declaration, and there I well, we was there, uh, Weitzman's deputy in Palestine, uh, uh, various times. He was uh, Russian, uh, but spoke, I think, 10 languages, a very literate man, who had written a book on the history of Zionism, a book on Dinoza, a highly intellectual man who was responsible, I think, for gaining the approval of the French foreign minister and the French government to Balfour's declaration, 1917, before it was produced and before it was announced, he went to France and got the French to agree. He was a great communicator. He then went to Italy. We got the Italian government to agree. And he even spoke to the Pope. Popes over the years have not been entirely friendly to the Jews. He convinced that particular Pope that uh, they shouldn't be supporting what they deemed in their aspirations to have a state, make a state in Palestine. And he agreed. Then came back. And was heavily involved with Weitzman and San Remo 
and the ultimate mandate and he was behind the scene a lot of the time producing a lot of the ideas and intellectual philosophy of state and of band and remarkable man there are very little written about him it was son I think he was beautiful he lived for a while in London only where I live now and there is a blue plaque on the wall to demonstrate that he actually but he deserves more uh, I thought of writing a book about him but all the records and most of his stuff are in the room and I don't have a boss. I don't think for that I could dig it all out. So, uh, but he is a man that deserves a full power. Can you describe the origins and repercussions of the Nebi Musa riots of April, April 1920? Yeah, this was, uh, this was before, before, or, uh, I think it was before uh, Samuel was born by Ike Mosman. And they, but there were actually two rights. One, um, there was a, a rumor going around that the deeds were sent on taking over the Temple Mount, the Allies of Moss, from the Allies. And the, there were some rumors so Kings in and Arabs in Yatta. Uh, there were communists yeah, who were having a fight, not a clean fight, but a mystical fight, more non-communist Jews. But this was completed until the Jews in Jaffa killing Arabs. And this was the propaganda that uh, Hussaini, amongst others, was propagating in the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 1920. And the Jews, the Arabs became incensed and ran out in the streets and started a whole host of well, actions against the Jews. And then there was an event when Jewish lads were playing football or football went into the garden of an Arab neighbor and the Arab got shot, killed. And the Jews were incensed. So there was, a, again, a number of certain uh, reasons why the Arabs and the Jews started fighting each other. And there were a lot of killings going on in, in and around Jerusalem, in Hebron, and in other cities around Palestine until, of course, uh, it flagged. Uh, and one of the things that happened was that Ronald Stores, who was then the administrator of the Muslim Development under Ernest Samuel, was at a celebration of the Musa event. And he um, uh, didn't react quickly enough to suppress the riot. And he was forever ostracized by the Jews for having failed to prevent the riot or the fall uh, immediately after that. I think he was ostracized unfairly because while Stolz was, in fact, a very important man, he became very friendly with the Jews and set up chess conferences, uh, chess competitions, uh, which he played and played. He set up music concerts which were mainly ruled up until entirely ended. He worked closely at the Jews to uh, set up clubs. He was very involved in ensuring that uh, 
the past uh, that Jerusalem was protected from devastation by developers and ensured that the city was only built with Jerusalem stone and any old buildings could only be knocked down with both formation. So he did a lot with Jerusalem. But this business of failing to react to those particular riots stuck with him for the rest of his time in Palestine. So that's the background to old. Tell us about some of the subsequent acts of violence. The Western Wall riots of 1929, the disturbances of 1936, and the Arab uprising between 1936 and 39. Yeah, I've spoken a little about the 36 to 39 riots, uh, much against the Brits as well as against the Jews. The 1929 was a significant, very significant when uh, separated the 1920s to 1929, when after the initial riots, things were beginning to settle down. For other problems, but in that period, it was a difficult period. 1929 was the turning point, and it up into the 1930s, where I didn't and then that more and typically about antagonism. Ostensibly, because uh, the Western Wall, where the Jews had long prayed uh, during the bat, not running and war and so on, uh, a narrow area in front of the Western Wall, surrounded by hovels of Palestinian Arabs uh, and right adjacent to the Wall. And the Jews on Yom Kippur put out the beating about a division and technical division between the men and women and brought chairs in and the days on which they put together. And the Arabs objected, saying, look, they're taking over. They're taking over all their and threatening to take over the Western Wall and that they're more up. They completed what was happening. And the Brits had to agree to take down both his chairs and the dividing They failed to do it. They only did it related yet. And um, the Brits had to come in and remove it against the opposition of the Jews who were praying at the time in young people. Well, that set the scene. And the Jews in Dapa heard about it and decided to walk object to this, the Arabs immediately, immediately reacted and set up a series of devastating uh, of which were killed in Jerusalem, old killed there, and down in Hebron, there are large numbers in Safed, all where seminary and all females raided and a lot of the occupants were killed, the buildings were destroyed, and in Japan. So the whole thing was it. The Jews tried to defend themselves. People like Kapitinsky uh, and 
but he lost in his religion. Continuing inside, he had produced a paper about possible states of uh, state in Palestine during 1915. He was turned down by the then Prime Minister, uh, but he obviously had some positive facts, people, interests, well before the declaration, and he of course supported it. He was out of office when he was made out of the nuts in that he wasn't in the government of Parliament. Um, but he was a very upright uh, man, very moralistic, supported the designers, but then actually Dell's fault is equal status, the unbiased ideal when he formed by Lento battles to support the Arab at that time. Uh, but he remained very supportive in those years. Interestingly, his cousin was Herbert Montague, who was actually Montague Samuel, uh, also Samuel. He uh, was, was also in the government. I um, changed his name to Samuel uh, Montague, okay. Montague. From uh, Samuel. And he, instead of being the Zionist, was getting on to the idea of Palestine uh, being a Jewish state. He said, if we have Palestine as a Jewish state, all the Jews that have made it in the UK have gone anywhere to this desert. And they didn't know why. They don't want that. They dead against it uh, and argued vociferously in cabinet. During the critical time when Balfour produced his declaration in the world, he was sent out on five stories to India, where we went by stories to India out in the way, all about the declaration. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Um, well, I've been writing another book about Finkless Book and War. I write about Finkless Book and War in this book. When I came across him uh, while I was writing the Monday book, and I thought we just had some biography, so I've written a biography of him. It will come out in August uh, this year, next month. Um, he was a fascinating man, so he's taken up a lot of my time doing research into how he came about. He was born in Ukraine, a Muslim Russian revolutionary, an assassin. Who went on to set up the Hellblock to take the Arab Afghanistan? Irving was a very special planet. Um, he set up a lot of airways in Naval. Irving was a very special And since then, I've been returning to my forced forced health, and I'm writing a book now on the National Health Service. Which of course is the light of day. Uh, we'll come on out next year, won't be all right, but, uh, So, those are what's occupying me in my so called retirement. As we end today, I'm signing off by reminding you that I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Today, it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Lord Leslie Turnberg. He is a professor of medicine and 
was president of the Royal College of Physicians in England. Today, Leslie and I have been discussing his newly published book, Mandate, The Palestine Crucible, 1919-1939, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2021.